Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Third lesson that we've been doing on a series called The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating. And uh, I've just, I've loved the feedback that we've been getting and, uh, you know, thank you for that. Some of the questions that have actually come in uh, based off these lessons, it just, it's been so, it's been really enriching to me. Um, It's, 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 it's one thing to teach something, um, but just to know that God is working and God is doing what God has always promised to do um, through his word. The word of God is powerful. It's beautiful, right? It makes life rich. And so um, I'm so happy for what God is doing in, in so many different lives. And, and we thank God and give him all the glory for that. Um, today's uh, lesson, I kind of wanted to actually, even though I just pumped up the new rules for love, sex, and dating, I kind of want to talk about what love, sex, and dating typically leads to, which is marriage. And um, I, I do want to make a kind of a disclaimer before I move into the lesson for today. And that disclaimer is actually about um, the subject of divorce. Um, there, it's just a reality in our world. Divorce has happened. If we went around the room, probably everybody in this room has been touched uh, in some way, some kind of area, some relationship in your life has been touched um, by divorce. I'm sure it's left scars all over the room. But today, I want to talk about marriage and kind of not getting divorced. And that's obviously the Christian view. That's obviously what Jesus endorsed. But if you are here and you have experienced divorce before, listen, I want to make something very clear right up front. Today's message is not about your past. Today is about your future. Hello, today's message is not about your past. Today's message is about your future. And here's the reason that I want to say that. Whether it's right or not, I think Christians have kind of gotten this, this reputation of being a little bit judgmental and, and, and those kinds of things. And people don't like talking about difficult subjects and, and, and things that have happened in your life, your experiences, your past, your history. I get all of that stuff. And I just want you to know today that when it comes to like being judgmental and all that kind of stuff, this is not that. That's not what this message is about. And if you walk away feeling that way from this message, listen, put that on me. It's, it's something that I messed up in my words, but that is definitely not my intention today in what I am teaching. Do I think there's a better way than divorce? Yep, I really do. Do I, do I think that you, know, you have options following Jesus when it comes to your marriage or maybe your marriage that's in trouble that you don't have without following Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely I do, and that's why I want to talk about this. That's why I think it's so important to talk about marriage and what it's designed to be. When you think about the pain of divorce, now listen, and you guys know this, right? I mean, when you think about the pain, the confusion, the brokenness, the the hurt, the anger, the bitterness that can get into a life through divorce or because of divorce, like who of us wants anybody to experience that, right? Right? None of us do. And of course, if you've already gone through that in your life, then I certainly want, wouldn't want you to experience that again. And so today, when we talk about marriage and, and those kinds of things, today, I want to make sure you know up front, today, it's not about your past. Today is about your future. And I think, I think if you'll learn to trust Jesus and what Jesus taught about marriage, um, I think that you're going to be happier if you will do life his way. Can I get an amen from somebody? All right. Disclaimer got... All right, everybody gots. All right. Uh, the, the other thing I, I want to say before I start is that I feel compelled, in, you know, in my ministry, in my teaching, in my uh, pastorship, whatever you might call it, I, I feel very compelled to not just give a what, but to also give a why. And I don't know if that's a generational thing or what, but I think that once we understand the why 
behind Jesus' what, it can kind of help us to not just kind of, you know, knuckle down or bear down and submit to something, but to actually kind of begin to wrap our hearts and our brains around it, right? It can begin to shape our hearts and our heads. And who doesn't want a new head shape? Yeah, you know, I mean, we all do. But, you know, we, we tend to put Jesus into the good category when it comes to, like, thinking about great people. We tend to put Jesus in the good category, and we don't always think of Jesus in the smart category. But listen to me. Jesus was brilliant. Thank you. One guy. Nobody else. Jesus was brilliant. Yes, like Jesus was involved in your design, and there's a lot to be said about that. He is the prototype, right, of what it means to live a, a wise and a fulfilled life, and, and there's a lot more, again, that could be said about that, but we tend to only think of Jesus within a moral framework. But even when Jesus was ending his most famous sermon, the most, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, when he was coming to the conclusion, he put the, his own words into the category of wisdom and foolishness. But we don't always think of Jesus in terms of being wise or being foolish. We tend to think of it in terms of like heaven, hell, good, bad. It's all within the moral framework. But he categorized his own words in terms of wisdom and foolishness. And so I want to share not only how living his life reflected is a good thing for us, right? Like when we reflect Jesus out into our world, of course, that's a morally good thing. But also beyond that, I want to, I hope, I'm praying that we can see through these lessons, through this lesson today, how wise it is to follow Jesus for your life. How blessed it is. And without going into a long Bible study on that, the word blessed in scripture, basically it, it means happy. And who doesn't want to be happy? Right? We all want to be happy. And so I think following Jesus, it's going to make you the happiest. And by the way, there's a phrase out there. Well, I'm just going to leave that alone. Okay, we're going to go on. But of course, one of the things, and it's the thing that we're talking about today, one of the things that Jesus so brilliantly sets out is his ethic for marriage, his idea for marriage. And the, the, the really kind of troubling part is that as I look around society and as the research is starting to show and the trends in our culture and our world are starting to show, that the current kind of young adults, people of marrying, marrying age, single adults, whatever you might be, the up and coming generation of people who one day will be faced with the choice of marriage, overwhelmingly the research is showing that people have a negative view of marriage. People think, well, marriage is, is boring. Marriage just isn't necessary anymore, right? It doesn't serve any purpose. I can get the same benefits without getting married, so why would I get married? And listen, before we kind of shake our heads and tisk, 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 I mean, like, really, there's kind of a point to the way them, fe you know, feeling the way that they do. And here's what I mean by that. I think that when they look around at what's going on in our world, close to 60% of all marriages end in divorce, is it any wonder that they feel that way about marriage? Think about this. In 1970, around 90% of all babies born were born into a married family, a family where the, the husband and wife were married. Today, less than 60% of babies born are born into a family with an intact married father and mother. So if they grow up in that context, of course they're thinking, why do I need to be married? That's their reality. That's all that they have ever known. In 1960, 72% of American adults were married. In 2008, that number was approximately 50%. The numbers have dropped way off. The chances of having a stable marriage aren't really a given anymore in life. And even if your marriage is, quote-unquote, stable, and whatever else that might mean, man, the, the idea is, the rumor is, the word on the street is, 
that after a little while, you're going to be bored out of your mind. Yeah, I thought everybody would stay quiet on that one. I, I didn't expect any amens on that one. I was setting you guys up, you know. But, but, so, so, but here's the thing. Here's the, it's not funny, but here's the true thing. And, and we've kind of hit on this last week when we talked about sex. I think that most young adults aren't really down for this kind of, you know, being uncommitted long term. Most people kind of have this longing within them to be in a committed relationship. But... Marriage kind of has a bad rap in our current society, so most people kind of aim or end up for something in between the two, and more than half of all people today in American society live together before getting married. In 1960, there was a study done on this, or there was a study done on marriage and relationships, and the number of people, the percentage of people who lived together without being married was so insignificant in the study that it ended up kind of like an asterisk. It was just like a footnote in the study. But today, the number is more than half. The percentage is more than half of all people live together without being married. So what's going on? Why are all these things happening? And why is there this narrative that marriage is dead or dying? And, and most coming, you know, in current and coming, uh, upcoming generations, the reason that they're so, you know, kind of out of touch with marriage and don't really want to commit to marriage is this idea that, that marriages, they're just not happy. And, and again, who can blame them? If, if almost 60% of marriages end in divorce, surely there are other marriages that they're just not happy, but they haven't gone all the way to get divorced. So that would put the number overwhelmingly into the category of most marriages being unhappy. Now, secondly, there's some more research that shows, and this is kind of to people's credit, that most people take legal documents and vows and ceremonies like very, very seriously. And so it's like, well, if we're going to get married and if we're going to enter into that kind of commitment, then we need to give it a test drive. We need to get together and live together so that we can make sure that we're compatible, right? We need to kick the tires and check under the hood, whatever that might mean in this metaphor that, that I'm using. But, you know, and then on top of that, here, this is crazy to me. Most popular quote-unquote relationship advice today is about determining your sexual chemistry. Now think about this. This is everywhere. Sexual, quote-unquote, excitement in marriage is said to be perhaps the key to the rest of your marriage being happy. Get the sex right, and everything else will fall into place. But if the sex isn't amazing every single year for the rest of your life, well, then nothing else really matters. And they never promote the grown-up understanding that sex is not the cause of happiness in your relationship, but sex is one of the many byproducts and results of happiness in your relationship. That was good. That was good, somebody. I'll say an amen for myself. Amen. All right, all right. But lastly, the, ba the, the last kind of big assumption that it's going on in our world to kind of tune people or turn people away from marriage is the thing that we talked about, you know, ever since week one of this series. The, the idea that out there for me somewhere is a perfect soulmate. That once I find the right person, everything will be... That was horrible. All right, we're going back to week one. I'm going to cancel these notes. Go. No, it's that once we find the right person, everything will be all right. And the right person, when I find that one who matches me across 39 dimensions of compatibility, 
Yeah, some e-harmony people in the room. I, I hear you laughing. That, that, that once I find that right person, they won't ask me to change. They will accept me just as I am because, after all, none of us really need to grow or grow up, right? I'm, and there's all of these assumptions going on. But in spite of all the negativity, there, there's really, as you get to digging into the research, and there's a ton of research on this stuff, a ton of studies, a ton of statistics on this. In spite of all the negativity, there's some truths in the research that kind of contradict the prevailing thinking about marriage, the, comp- the prevailing negative thinking about being married. There's research that says this. Listen, the research that says those who live together before marriage are more likely to get a divorce than those who do not. Now, that's scary. Now, that, that's a statistic. That's actually in a study and not like by a small thing. I'm talking like, you know, major research companies are finding this out. But it doesn't make sense because I thought that if we gave it a test drive, we should be more likely to stay together. There's another startling statistic that the earlier that sexual activity is introduced into a relationship, the more likely that relationship is to break up. Now, wait a minute. How does that work? Why is there a connection there? I don't really understand. And it turns out that, yes, the divorce rate is close to 60%, but the largest percentage of divorces involve people who marry 18 or younger. And did you know there's actually quite a lot of that going on? And I don't recommend that necessarily for anybody. I really don't. There's a lot of obstacles to that. And the statistics say that you are in trouble. But if you will complete high school and are somewhere in your 20s, it turns out that your marriage actually has a pretty good chance of making it. So there's, there's this kind of prevailing negative view of marriage in our society, but the statistics and the research don't always kind of run in line with that. They don't always run parallel to that. And as for the unhappy marriages, this should make some of y'all really happy. In long-term studies, around 65% of marriages that reported being unhappy If they will stick together for another three to five years, they experience a complete reversal of their marriage circumstances, and they then report being happy. So you can be in an unhappy marriage and leave it, or you can be in an unhappy marriage and actually do some grown-up work to make it better, and it turns out that in three to five years, you'll end up in a happy marriage again. But then you won't have alimony or visitation schedules to figure out. Yeah, I thought the alimony thing would get a couple of chuckles in. And then, over the last 40 years, research says that 62% of people who stay in one marriage report not just being happy, but being very, very happy. And then you combine all of this, and, and t- there's so much more. As I, got to, I had to edit this list down even again this morning because there's like a ton of research and statistics. I didn't want to bore anybody. But combined with all of this are the empirical evidence and the studies that tell us that married people are physically healthier at all ages. Married people are mentally healthier at all ages. That one's a surprise. The men, married people have more wealth accrual at all ages. And children within, mar- within families where the husband and wife, the, the, the birth parent and uh, father and mother stay together throughout their childhood are two to 300% more likely to have what the research called positive life outcomes. So not even one scripture given Not even one little Bible verse cracked open, and we can say that in spite of our culture's fear that marriage is dead or dying, the evidence says that a single committed marriage is still the best thing for you, for your kids, for your health, and for your wealth, and for your legacy. So how does it work? Why 
does marriage seem to be so effective at kind of keeping us, we might say blessed, other people might say happy? How does it work that this, this, this two people coming together and this, this legal thing, right, this, this ceremony thing, these, these vows and these commitments and these promises, how does it work that this actually ends up being better for us? And so what I want to share today is this basic freedom that marriage gives us. And we might assume that marriage kind of removes freedom, but it turns out that marriage actually gives us a freedom that we don't always think about, that we don't always remember. And if you'll stick with me over the next three hours, we're going to kind of go through this. One of the big, <laughs> don't worry, it won't be that long. Here's the thing. One of the biggest ideas that's turning people away from marriage is that you don't actually need the marriage to get the benefits of the marriage. And I can see it. It kind of makes sense, right? And, and a statement that maybe every person in this room has heard in some form or another, maybe not exactly these words, but something close to these words, maybe in a soap operas or maybe in, a, in, a, in a, a comedy or romantic comedy or a love story or a book or, you know, whatever it might be. You may have heard some version of this or maybe even experienced some version of this before. I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love you. Why would I need a piece of paper to tell you of my love, my enduring and undying love, right? And here's the thing about this. Here's the little subtext, the thing that's kind of hidden underneath that statement. In that concept of marriage, the essence of love has nothing to do with contracts. You're like, well, does any love have to do with contracts? Stay, stay with me, right? Three hours. we got a little ways to go. So... It has nothing to do with contracts. It has nothing to do with covenants. It has nothing to do with promises or, or legal documents or ceremonies in front of witnesses. But in this context, the essence of love is about passion, and it's about feeling, and it's about fervor, and it's about fire and ice and, and a faster heartbeat and, and butterflies. Anybody remember week one? Right? That's what it's all about. It's about the feelings. And not only do you not need a ceremony in front of witnesses to, to prove your feelings, but a ceremony can end up hurting the way you feel about some people because then you see their family. And then it's like, you know, we'll move on again. We'll move on. I got lots of jokes that just like we need to cut those out. But, but understand that that is not the understanding of love behind marriage. That is not the understanding or the concept of love that Jesus was endorsing when Jesus was talking about two people being married. You might guess that Jesus taught something radically different when it came to, to long-term committed love. And Jesus, in fact, put all of his backing behind the original concept of marriage. And we find the original concept of marriage between the first man and the first woman found in what we call the book of Genesis. And Genesis was more than just a Phil Collins band. Uh, Genesis was the book of beginnings, and it kind of tells us about a groovier kind of love. A groovy kind of love. And in the beginning, in Genesis, when we see the first man and first woman, nobody's getting these old rock references like Journey, Chicago, Genesis. Nobody's getting any of that stuff. It's because you've all been saved. Amen. Thank you. Lord. And in the beginning, though, in, the, in the, the first part of all of it, in Genesis with Adam and with Eve, the essence of a relationship love is radically different than a temporary emotion. Listen to me. Love, and maybe I can say it this way, mature love, 
Do you guys remember when we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in week number one? When Paul says, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. See, we all grew up with fairy tale ideas of love. And it always involves these feelings, these emotions, these butterflies. But when the Bible talks about love, when Jesus spoke of love, it was something way different than feelings. And it's like, well, Jared, are you saying that feelings don't matter? No, no, feelings matter very much. But sometimes we believe the lie that feelings are supposed to lead our relationships and we miss out on the very mature understanding that feelings actually follow a healthy relationship. They don't lead us into a healthy, that was another good one. You guys are missing it. That was so good. Feelings do not lead. Feelings are meant to follow. And the essence of love in the Jesus view, the essence of love in the Genesis view of marriage is found in commitment. It's found in unbreakable promises to someone. It's found in vows that we make with someone. Love's highest form is in a binding kind of contract called a covenant. Now listen, I I don't have a crystal ball and I'm not a fortune teller, but I would bet that for a lot of us here, especially us younger people, that if we were to take a poll between passionate love and contractual love, we're going to choose passionate love like every single time. Come on, passion sounds better. You're scared to say amen because you know I'm setting you up. Feelings are awesome, Jared. You know, and, and if you're like, if, we, if I'm choosing sides, I'm going with fire and ice and butterflies, right? And I know what you're thinking, like contracts? Really, Jared, you're trying to sell us on marriage and you're giving us word like contract? You're trying to give us language like the best thing for you is a binding legal agreement between two parties? Like, you know, maybe God needs to step up the PR efforts here. Like, you know, and, but listen, before you shut me off, don't we all know this? We all know this, that feelings fade, and passions, they will subside, and your emotions will come, and then they'll go, and then they'll come, and then they'll go. And they come. Come on, this happened to you this morning before you had your cup of coffee, somebody. Fire dies, and ice melts, and heart rates slow down, and butterflies are pretty for a little bit until they fly over the road and get stuck on the grill of a semi-truck. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't last You need something better than that. And when it comes to something as important as bearing your soul with another person, hello, somebody. When it comes to the kind of intimacy that we talked about last week, the two mingling together until they're inseparable and two people becoming one, when you're talking about the fearlessness and the vulnerability and the safety and the protection, something as private and honest as your dreams even. Anybody ever notice that like when you're young, people ask you what you want to be when you grow up? And you're like a fireman. Like, you know, you're proud of it. You just, you want everybody, Caleb, when he was young, I want to work at McDonald's. Like that was, that was, you know, my kid's life cool. <laughs> and then like you get, you get older. <laughs> Aim low, son. You'll never miss. That's a, that's like, and then you get older with all of those dreams that you had. And like you, you know, life's kind of forced you to drift into that nine to five that, you know, you don't really care for. And somebody asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up and you, you just don't even want to say anything, right? Like, come on, right? I mean, that's a, why? Because those, are, those things are private. 
Those things are like, that, that tells a little bit about me. It's intimate. It's personal. And it, it forces you to kind of pull something out of your heart and share it with somebody. Or your flaws, right? Those things and those parts and those pieces of us that we hope nobody ever sees and nobody ever finds out about. Feelings fade. And passions subside. And your emotions will come. And they will go. And I want to ask you a question this morning. I want to ask you this. Do you really want to give the most personal pieces of yourself to someone who may not be there in three years? You see where I'm going with this? You see where Jesus is taking this thing? All of a sudden, a covenant sounds pretty good, doesn't it? All of a sudden, when it comes to those parts of ourselves that are broken, where we need some healing, when it comes to those parts of ourselves, like our dreams, our hopes, when we were starry-eyed, like we need somebody that's going to be there, somebody that promises to always be there, to never leave us, to never run away. All of a sudden, words like covenant sound pretty good. All of a sudden, words like binding sound pretty good, right? A promise from someone that they're going to be with you until you die. Wow. That's strong language. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. It's meant to be. To be. Somebody promising that they're going to be with you for better or for worse, right? And what does that even mean? Suddenly words like binding, covenant, contract, ceremony, they don't sound cold and less intimate than passionate than passion. Rather, they start to sound more intimate. Suddenly words like covenant and binding, contract, and, and, and you, know, you know, being stuck with somebody, suddenly that doesn't sound colder than fire and ice. Suddenly it sounds a little bit more liberating than fire and ice. We end up being set free by a promise. We end up being able to open up our heart because of somebody's promise. We end up being able to expose our flaws because of somebody's promise that they would never run away. And it might sound cold and it might sound institutional at first, but don't we want someone to be with us that we can let our guard completely down and they will stay forever? That's what we want when it comes to marriage. See, there's two, if I can put it in this, these kind of ways, there are two basic re- relationships, two basic types of relationships when it comes to you know, this stuff that we're talking about. Consumer relationships and covenant relationships. See, your grocery store is a consumer relationship. You like your grocery store, you go there, and as long as you get good product and it's at a good price, you're happy with your grocery store, right? How many of you guys shop at the same store? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. We're in church. Raise your hand up high. It's active. Now, put that hand down. Everybody raise your other hand. Now, the first hand again. Nobody's doing this. Come on. Raise your hand again. Raise the other hand now. Put both hands in the air. Now, wave them like you just... You guys are like, quiet today. Got to help you all out. Somebody kick, no, don't, let's just go on. So you're happy with your grocery store. As long as the produce is good, the product is good, and as long as the prices aren't too high, you're happy with your grocery store. But the day that you go and milk is too expensive, the day you go and they get that fancy bread and all of a sudden the price is just through the ceiling, the day you go and you see rotten vegetables over in the produce counter or rancid meat over in the meat counter, what's going to happen? I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else. 
I'm going to go find a store that can give me better product, and maybe it might even cost me less to get it. See, in a consumer relationship, here's the thing. My needs are more important than the relationship. And as soon as my needs aren't being met, I'm just going to go find a new relationship. But now think of a covenant relationship. Think of the relationship perhaps between a parent and a child. Kids cry. Kids' noses run. Like, like where'd you get that much snot? Like, how, did, how does that happen? Like, you only drank one bottle of water today, and you got like four gallons of snot coming out. Kids poop themselves. Like, come on, it's nasty. The kid is selfish, right? It's mine, mine, mine. Kids hit, and they bite, and they stink, and they steal. And kids are the worst. No, I'm just kidding. I just... Kids wake you up in the middle of the night by peeing the bed. It's 3 a.m., and you're like, why is my leg warm and yet cold at the same time? What in the world is going on with this? If that ever happens to you, this is like pro-parenting tip right here, okay? This is going to be for free. Young parents, listen to me. If that ever happens to you, don't make a big fuss. Stay quiet and see if your spouse has noticed. How many of you know, first one to say something has to clean it up. That's right. So just pro-parenting tip number one right there. But listen, kids pee the bed. Like Caleb never gave me warning when he peed the bed, right? But when, even when your kids pee the bed, you don't get up and say, that's it. I've had it. Put them in the car. Drive, you know, a few neighborhoods over. Get them out. Put them on that doorstep. Get back in your car and drive back home and just leave them there. You can't do that. Turns out they'll arrest you. And then everybody that you're locked up with will look bad sideways at you. Why? Why would they arrest you? Why would people look down on you if you do that? Because even in our messed up society, we all understand something, that in a covenant relationship, the well-being of the other is more important than my needs. I have made a covenant with this child who can't even make a covenant back with me, and I promise I am going to be there no matter what. Listen, my, I don't care what my kids do. I, I really don't. My kids will always be my kids. That's right, son. Give me that employee discount off the dollar menu. But <laughs> Babe, we got his college covered. We're good. But when you have not made a marriage vow to someone, when you have not promised someone by law, when you have not gathered your closest friends and your closest family and then stood in front of them right next to a preacher who is a representative of God and you have not made some promises to them, you are still basically in a consumer relationship because at any time he or she could walk away or at any time you can get up and walk away. And we even say this about people. We say, well, he's got commitment issues. We say, she's got commitment issues. What are we saying? We are saying that that person always leaves an escape hatch. That person always leaves a door open. They always leave a little bit of wiggle room. So if things ever get too bad or start costing them too much, we just know already that they are going to be gone. They are consumers. 
They're not willing to put themselves into a covenant. And so what happens is that the partner in the relationship is stuck in a sales position for the rest of their life. They become their own VP of marketing. You have to make sure your hair looks good every day. Come on, somebody. All the bald people are saying, well, I don't know about that. (laughs) You have to make sure you dress good, talk well, treat them nice, all of these kinds. You become your own personal VP of marketing because you have to be. Because the moment that you don't give them the products that they like or the moment that the cost becomes too high, they are gone. And everything that you have shared with them, all of the little intimate pieces of self that you have pulled out of your heart and, and given to someone in confidence, now that trust is broken. The relationship's gone. The hurt is there. And you're cut. And it's deep. And sometimes they even use those things against you and use those, those conversations and those feelings and, and those thoughts to embarrass you. And they have a kind of power over you. And we know, we've seen it. We've seen it time and time again that it leaves the, the deepest scars and the deepest of wounds, consumer and, cust- and, and covenant relationship. Zach, can you help me out with this? Because my phone is, I forgot to charge it before church started and it's dead. But the one who made us, listen to me, listen to me, our designer, our maker, our creator, he fashioned us and he formed us and he knows us more intimately than we even know ourselves. He has designed us to live in covenant relationship with each other. He has designed a covenant for me to enter into. And I have promised God first and Chelsea second. And Chelsea has promised God first and Jared second. That she is with me and that I am with her no matter what. No matter what. We are together. We are stuck. We are Whatever, like I can't think of, it's, it's over in such a beautiful way, in such a beautiful, I'm locked in, I'm stuck, she's locked in, she's stuck, and in what some people want to call institutional and cold and harsh and legal, now the two of us enjoy a safety and we enjoy a freedom that other people don't even know about. They can't even imagine where we are free to open up and share all of, oh, yes, yes, come on, can you give God praise for the beautiful covenant? of marriage. And now we can safely open all of ourselves and share and let someone see into all of the broken places and and help us and, and pray with us and love us and encourage us and support us and strengthen us all because of the covenant of marriage. It's all because we have promised each other for life that we will be there. We have promised each other until one of us dies. And now we're in a race to see who can die first. But, we... but this is what we have promised to each other. And listen, listen to me. Young people, single people, single again people, listen to me. This is what you want someone to say to you. In essence, breaking marriage down, breaking the covenant and all that stuff down. This is what you hope to hear. You may not know it yet. This is what you want to hear someday. Somebody to tell you that no matter what I see in you, I will never run away. No matter what I see in you, I'll never run away. 
I will never turn my back on you. I will never betray you. You ever notice that all of the, the vows in a marriage, all of the, the promises that you make, they're all promises about what you're going to give to the other person? There are no ifs. Like, I promise to love you and be with you faithfully in sickness and in health, richer, poor, better, worse, all those kinds. There's no ifs. There's no as long as. You are making a promise without conditions. You are entering into a covenant. And by the way, call me whatever you want. I am not a fan of you writing your own vows. Just not. If you want to write something really pretty to each other to say before the vows or after the vows, that's fine. But leave the vows alone. Promise yourself to somebody without condition until death does you apart. Can I hear a good amen from someone? Now listen, I promise, you say to that person, I promise to love you faithfully. I promise to love you in sickness and health and for better or for worse. And I mean, think about that. What does that even mean? What does the worst look like in another person? And don't get me wrong. Listen, there are some things that are too worse for you to continue in. You should never stay in a relationship where you are abused. Let me just put that disclaimer out there. Someone's abusing you, get out. All right? Listen, if someone is unfaithful to you sexually, you have the option of walking away completely free of guilt or shame or condemnation. Listen to me. If that happens and you don't think you can stay with that person, get out. Don't look back. Don't feel bad about it. Well, that one landed hard, but that's good. But you promise yourself to someone. You promise to be there in sickness, health, better or worse. You promise for richer or for poorer, for poorer or for poorer. Regardless of how you're meeting my needs at any given moment, maybe when you're not even meeting my needs at any given moment, I promise that I'll never walk away from you. I will never turn my back on you. I will never run away from you. Now, here's the thing, and I'm I'm getting close to being done, but I want to share one last kind of scriptural thing about marriage today. God is is so brilliant in his design. His wisdom just, it just blows my mind. And, you know, marriage was designed to call us out of an aloneness. Marriage was designed to call us out of an individual identity and into a relationship where we learn to love an other, someone who is other than us. Men, something that is other than you. A woman. Women, something that is other than you. A man. He created us to find fulfillment and joy in a relationship with him, but he is so completely different than us. He is so completely other than us. What he did was he gave marriage to be a training ground where we could learn to love something that is other than ourselves. This is powerful. And marriage forces us into this side-by-side pressure cooker of life. And as we honor our covenant that we have made to each other, as we honor the commitment and the vows that we have made to each other, we begin or we grow to love that person more and more deeply. As we begin to see something in them that we don't have in ourselves, right? Like we face a circumstance or a situation in life and it's like, I want to handle it this way. I want to say that. I want to make sure they know this. And then she comes along with it. Maybe I'm just telling on my own self. <laughs> she comes along with this, this grace and this mercy and this kindness. And I was like, I didn't even see it that way. I never even thought of it that way. He doesn't respond to things like I do. But you know what? In that circumstance, he actually responded better than I would, right? And you look at your spouse and you think, man, look at him go. Look at her go. And when I take a moment to see life through her eyes, man, she's amazing. God created this to happen within the covenant of marriage. 
And I just want to say this, and, and just another one more quick disclaimer. Listen, if you are single in this room and you prefer being single, I just want to say there's not enough time to go into it today, but listen, I'll buy you coffee. I'll talk to you about your singleness. Listen, because you are single and prefer to be single, I want to say this to you. You are not broken. You are not weird. You are not messed up. You are an exception to the rule, but the fact that you are exceptional proves the rule. All right, And I want to talk about the rule because that's the experience for most people. But listen to me, if you're single and prefer to be single, you're not flawed. And there's a lot we can say together, and I want to spend some time with you. So come talk to me, and we'll go grab some coffee. I'll buy. My, my son gets a discount at McDonald's. But, uh, <laughs> but for most of us, we sense that we are imperfect alone. For most of us, we sense that we are half done and that our maker placed a need within us for an other in our lives. In fact, Genesis 2 and 18 says this, the Lord God said, it is not good. Everybody say that with me. Not good for the man to be alone. There was something solitary in a man by himself that was not good. This single man needed someone, something to help him. In other words, he could not be everything God wanted him to be he could not be everything God saw him with the potential of being on his own. It is not good for the man to be alone. Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And I just want to say something about this word helper, okay? All the chauvinists, male chauvinists in the room, you're not going to like me on this part, all right? This word helper does not mean your personal assistant, this word helper, husband, does not mean your slave. This comes from the, yeah, it got quiet in here, didn't it? No men, men, this is where you want to say amen. Like, you know, you'll, you'll earn some brownie points. This word helper does not mean your slave. There's some smart guys in the room, that's right. It comes from the Hebrew word ezer. And there's the thing about the Hebrew word ezer. It was used of the men in the Old Testament whenever they came up against something that they could not solve on their own, and they would pray for God to be their ezer, their helper. Now, God's not your personal slave. God's not your private genie. God's not your personal assistant, and neither is your wife. She was created to do something that you cannot do on your own. Chelsea, were you looking? Just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. But man is alone. And man can't solve his aloneness on his own. He can't be everything God created him to be on his own. He's under-resourced, underpowered, not smart enough to tackle all of the challenges alone. Verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib because everybody loves ribs. He had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last. Everybody say, at last. Any Etta James fans in the room? Y'all ready? And, uh, uh. <laughs> the one guy there who's always dancing too early at the party is Junior. <laughs> at last. <laughs> This is at last. Bon you guys should see the altar call I got planned. It's amazing. It was going to be such a deep time of the Spirit coming up here in just a sec. That was a joke. Nobody knows that. Maybe I shouldn't have joked about that. Unpat myself for that one. Here we go. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called, whoa, man. 
because she was taken out of the man. And look at this in verse 24. Listen to me. This is so powerful. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. He leaves that family. He leaves that identity. It's what he's known his whole life. It's where he got his name. He leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They are mingled together. It's like taking the blue and the yellow and making the green. You can't pull blue and yellow back out. United to his wife. And they become one flesh. They become one new thing that has never existed before. God made an other from the very essence of man right up under his heart, and she was made to feel what was incomplete and what was missing in the man. Without each other, they were not good, but together they perfectly completed the image or the picture of God. But here's the thing about marriage. Marriage was not created. It was never intended to bring happiness to a one. Marriage was created for two ones to come together in unity and make a new one that perfectly reflected the image, the picture of God in the world. Your marriage was not made for you. You were made for your marriage. Your spouse was not made for you. You were made for your spouse. In other words, you are not supposed to be a consumer You are supposed to be looking for a covenant to which you can give yourself freely, completely, without reservation or hesitation. This is the purpose of marriage. But when marriage is seen as existing for what I can get out of it, when I enter into marriage as a consumer, then I can behave in marriage in whatever way benefits me the most. And when you stop benefiting me according to my evaluation... When you start giving me product that I just don't think is good enough, when you make the cost of being in a relationship with you too high, and I'm a consumer, then I am going to leave this relationship and find another relationship. Listen to me. Consumer relationships put a crushing burden of expectation on the spouse. Think about it. You're looking for someone to always make you happy. You don't even always make you happy. And now you're going to put that expectation on the other person. No wonder it's so hard to find a perfect someone. You're not looking for a someone. You're looking for a genie. You're not looking for a someone. You're looking for a unicorn. You're looking for something that does not exist. Hello. And if you do trick them into marrying imperfect you, you're going to find out that marriage is still incredibly hard. And when you face that difficulty and you face that frustration and the passion goes away and the butterflies get hit by the semi, you're going to wind up thinking, I married the wrong person. But it turns out that we just never put in the time to become the right person for ourselves, for our spouse. Hello, somebody. Hello, somebody. God created something so much better than a temporary, fleeting, fragile consumer relationship for you to belong to. He promised you something that will last forever. It's called marriage. It's called marriage. I'm almost done this morning, but I love this quote. There are two quotes that I found in my study and my research that 
I just absolutely love Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University, actually of several different universities here and in England, um, one of the most prominent theologians in America. He said this, and it's kind of a lengthy, and then I got a little bit quote on the, the end of his statement, but he said, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Think about that. Oh, go back, Zach. You weren't supposed to put that up yet. This is one mess up. You get one more, you're fired. <laughs> just kidding. Zach's amazing. I told him just the other night, Zach like always hits it, always is relative, not today. But, you know, we'll work on it. <laughs> This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. What does he mean by that? He, uh, I lost my place. We always marry the wrong person. Why? Because we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Oh, can I hear an amen from some married folks in the room? I thought I knew who you were. Turns out you're just like your mother. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Unless you got a comfortable couch, don't say that. He goes on, he says, or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. What's he saying right there? They were a consumer. They were putting up the good stuff, right? Painting the signs, making the storefront attractive. Then all of a sudden they stopped painting. <laughs> Marriage, he goes on, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. And then he finishes with this part right here. The primary problem then becomes learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Look at that, what I highlighted there. Learning how to love the stranger. You thought you knew who you were marrying. You thought you knew who you were getting into a relationship with. And if you never make the promise that you will never run away, you will never see their true self. You will never give them the freedom and the liberty to open up their heart and share with you everything that they are, everything that they are not, but everything that with your help and your prayers and your love, they can become. Because it is not good for us to be alone. God created us for marriage. God created us for marriage. Another Christian author named Lewis Smedes wrote this quote, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each of the five has been me. Isn't that true? Come on, somebody that's been married for a while. Like, life changes us. Life affects us. Life impacts us. And if I don't have a promise from a someone that she will never, ever run away, then I am not free to expose those changes and work through those changes. But thank God. Thank God for Chelsea. I love you, babe. I love you. This is huge brownie points right here. Mm. Come on, Dustin, interrupt the mood. <laughs> Music's supposed to make it better, not when Dustin's coming. I'm talking about romance. 
I totally blew this message. I'm all over with my teasing. But here's the essence of what I'm asking God to plant into our hearts today. Listen to me. Love is covenantal. Everybody say that with me. Love is covenantal. Say it one more time. Love is covenantal. It is not consumerism. It is not something for you to shop around. Love is in no way, once you get to the kind of love that you really want, you don't know it yet. Once you get to the kind of love that you really want in life, it is in no way about yourself. It is in no way about just your feelings. It is no, in no way about what your benefit is. Love is not about finding a soulmate who doesn't want to ever change you. Love, love is most deeply experienced. It's most beautifully experienced within a covenant, within a promise, within a I will, no matter if you will kind of promise from someone, within someone giving themselves to you completely and unreservedly. We know this. Come on, you know this. We get this. Hello, Christians, especially Christians. We get this. It's what attracted us to Jesus. It's what, is, what's what made us look at Jesus. Love is commitment and it's promise and it's giving of ourself. The essence of real love is found of, in giving of yourself to someone no matter what they give back to you. And it grows and it begins to grow and it begins to grow more and more over time as you begin to receive back from someone that you have poured your life into. Now think about this, like stay with me on this thing. It's what God does with us. God freely gives first. God doesn't put any condition on it. God doesn't say, hey, clean up your stuff and get your act together and then I will love you. But he sees us as we are and he gives to us of his grace and his mercy and love. And over time, as we mature in that same kind of love, we learn to freely offer ourselves back to him. And our relationship with God is strengthened and it's deepened because he first loved us without condition. This is why Christians believe so deeply in the covenant of marriage. Hello, if you're a Christian, this is why you need to hold on to this thing. You need to do everything you can to keep on keeping on even when you don't feel like keeping on. Hello, it's why your marriage should shine as a beacon of hope to this world around us. This is worth it. We've got to get this right, Christians. We've got to get this right, Jesus followers. Hello, there's a whole world of people, people that we love and we know who are hurt and they are broken because they've never seen something that we take for granted sometimes, the love of God working out in us. And in love, he has so beautifully poured his new life into all of us. He's not only our perfect example, he is the source of our strength that we need for marriage. So how do we keep going? Not not only when our spouse disappoints us, but maybe even when we disappoint ourselves. How do we keep going when we look at our own deeds and our own words, perhaps, and, and we think to ourselves, who am I? How could I do something like that? How could I treat them that way? How could I be that way with them? We keep going because we can look at a cross. And we remember that while we were still sinners, he loved us. The one whose image we are created to reflect out into our world was nailed to a cross for you and for me. And as he hung there on that cross, looking down through time and seeing us and all of our failures and all of our imperfections, when he could have come down off the cross and said, you're not worth it, I'm going to go look for another someone. Oh, come on, somebody. 
when Jesus could have turned his back on us and unextended his hand of mercy and he would have been completely justified to do so in my case. I know maybe not yours, but in my case. But he did not. He didn't look for another, but he told me, I am with you. I am for you. I will never leave you. I will never walk away from you. I will hold you in my hands. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. He knew you. He sees you. He saw you. He knew about every single time that he would call your name and you would plug your ears. He knew about every single time that he would reach for you and you would turn your back and walk away. He knew about every single moment where you should have reached out to him because he perfectly orchestrated it all. But we didn't. We pushed him to the side. But still, because of his covenant for us, in the greatest act of selfless love in human history. Run, baby, run. She's coming. She's coming. But don't worry, she can't give you up for a different one. Hello. In the greatest selfless act of selfless love in human history, he stayed on the cross. Even with the power to reject us as he saw us rejecting him, he stayed. And he didn't love us because we were beautiful and clean and perfect, but he loved us because we were not beautiful and clean and perfect. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.